The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. This is Sarah Riff, and welcome to Having It All in Other Lives, the podcast where I talk to people I admire about letting go of perfection, embracing the chaos, and redefining what success and happiness look like to them. Because ultimately, the only definition that matters is our own. So excited to introduce today's guest, Panam Patel. She took audiences and critics alike by storm for her hilarious and groundbreaking performance in the critically acclaimed Netflix series special, which just began its second season. The semi-autobiographical story from creator Ryan O'Connell broke boundaries for its genuine depiction of a disabled gay man trying to make it on his own. And Punham places stylish and body positive best friend Kim, who is being praised for her comedic timing. We had a really fun conversation about everything from developing a sense of humor as a defense mechanism against feeling like she never fit in to the cult of Peloton and learning to enjoy her own company, even during a pandemic. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Punam. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining me today. Where am I finding you? I'm in LA on a nice gloomy day. Okay. Well, so how are you doing? Or like, I like to say, how are you really? I'm actually really good. And it's going to sound basic, but I think it's because I just got a Peloton. Oh, and I, this is not sponsored content, but like, you know, exercise. But it content, could be, but it could, it could be. be Peloton. If you're listening, I'm ready. I was like, not sold on Peloton. I was like, okay, everyone's obsessed. Like I get it or whatever. Yeah. I was like doing class pass before, you know, pandemic times. And then I was like, I'm not going back into a gym anytime soon. Exercise actually makes me feel so good. Like literally clinically proven to make us feel better. I mean, Tom Cruise said it. Yeah. If Tom Cruise said it, I believe it. And I got it maybe like it's been two weeks. I am sold. I am part of the cult. I'm like telling everyone I know about it. It makes me feel so good. All the instructors, I don't know like how they're recording this, but it makes it look like they're looking right at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're only talking to you. They're only talking to me. And like, they know when I'm slouching, they know when my form is off. Like somehow it's all pre-recorded classes, but like when I'm on it, they're like, okay, sit up straight. I'm like, how did they know? Or they'll like smile and encourage me right when I'm about to lose energy. And I'm like, I'm in. I've drank yeah. the Kool-Aid. I'm part of the cult. I'm basic as hell. Were you a big spinner beforehand? I did. I used to go to this um, studio called Flywheel. Ooh. So I was like big into that. But then I was like convinced that like my legs were just going to get fucking ripped and the rest of my body was going to get left behind. So I um, stopped that and I started doing like class pass. But then obviously everything shut down. So I was like, I got to find another way. So I'm back in the saddle. Wait, so is that the dirty little secret of cycling? Because I've heard that too. It's like, you're there, you're feeling so good. You're high on the endorphins. And when you're in a class pre-pandemic, as you would say, when I've gone, they're dark enough where you kind of like catch that euphoric feeling. And like, I have caught really like crazy feelings whilst cycling where I'm like, could I do anything? I'm pretty sure I could. Oh, for sure. They And the music is so good. And I'm so telling good. you, these instructors know what they're doing. If I was ever in a class and I got like shouted out, 
I would like melt. My heart would start racing. Like I have a crush on every instructor, male or female. I'm just like, I just want you to be proud of me. I just want yeah, to do a good job. Pet. Oh my God. Such a teacher's pet, such a child of immigrants, like such a, I need to be doing Validated. a good job and everyone yeah. <laughs> needs to be like pleased with me and my performance. And like after class of an instructor would be like, you did really good out there. They could be lying. I don't even care. I'd be like, wow. She saw me during class. She knew I was trying really hard. I'm going to keep coming back. Like I'm the target market for this shit. I will right. be like, yes, it's just for me. I believe it. You care about me. But that's what people <laughs> say though, is they say like, you're going to bulk up down below. Like nobody is going to a class like that to try to get like big thighs. No. And that's what they say. And that's why you had to skirt around town to all these different classes, <laughs> trying to like even out your body. Cause you thought you were going to bulk up down below. Right. Yeah. But you know what the thing is with these ones, I've been doing ones that include like arm stuff too. Oh, so you uh -huh, take a little body. break, you do, yeah, it's a full body thing when they have core classes and we can stop talking about Peloton after this. Cause I am just doing free advertisement for them and I'm yeah. sure they don't need it. Seriously. But I'm, I'm fully in. So I think that's part of the reason I'm feeling so good. <laughs> okay. Well, tell me something. What was the last occasion on which you lied? Oh, Okay. So I went to my OBGYN earlier mm -hmm. today mm -hmm. and I, well, I didn't intentionally lie, mm -hmm. but this would be the most recent, like she was asking about like drugs and alcohol and things like that. No, and I was no, like, no, no, of course. No. Right. I was like, yeah. no, no. And she's like, and then she asked me again, I was like, no, no drugs, no alcohol. And she's like, so you don't drink. And I was like, well, yeah, I drink. And I was like, oh, sorry. I, I thought you were asking about my family history. Right. And she's like, no, I'm asking about you. And I was like, yeah, I drink. <laughs> like, I don't know it's, why I felt like so embarrassed to tell her I drank. Like when I go to doctor's offices lately, I find a lot of it is like intrusive information that they want to know about you. Right. Yeah. It's like, is this relevant here while you're yeah. checking out my vaginal health? Is this relevant if yeah, I have a glass of wine? I feel like some of the questions are also still like outdated. Mm -hmm. Cause you know how, like, there's lots of outdated rules and stuff when it comes to blood donation that are like pretty homophobic. Oh, I very much do because I donate blood at children's hospital. And I know that they do not allow gay men to donate blood. Like what the hell is happening? It's 2021. It, like terrible. terrible. What are we still doing? But even at the gynecologist, one of the questions was like, is that partner male? Is that your male partner also sleeping with other males? And I was like, why are we going so deep? And also what? Right, right, right. It just feels a little bit like it's like mm, judge much. Yeah. And a little bit like, are we still doing this? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sounds like it might be time for a new gynecologist. Okay. I know. Well, someone I who's love, a little bit more up to the speed. I think it's like the office. Cause the actual woman is like amazing. She's a woman mm -hmm. of color. She's young. She's like, loves to travel. I'm like, a big fan of hers. I think it's like the outdated forms. They just like, don't even think about and give you, I'm trying to think what else was on there that I was kind of like, um, is this relevant? Oh, now, Oh, they're asking a lot of questions at the OBGYN about your mental health now too. Well, you know what, which Listen, I appreciate. I appreciate that too. I really do. I think that that's yeah. good to be part of the conversation. And the truth is, is Listen, since we're confiding in each other, yeah, I don't have a general practitioner. So my OBGYN is really like the only doctor I have. So if she's yeah. not checking in on me, 
I'm going pretty much like unregulated. Unchecked. Yeah. No, I appreciate that too, especially for an OBGYN, because I feel like women go through so much hormonally and like no one ever talks about all the things mentally it does to you to just be a woman, just to exist as a woman. Let's get this out of the way. I have literally maybe four good days in a month where I'm either (laughs) not like expecting my period on my period, just after my period, right? Like I have such a small window to catch me where my husband's going to know, like we're in a fly zone. Like otherwise I'm going through it. Ups and downs, life's carousel. And we're so fucking gaslit to think that we're always like emotional or sensitive. And it's like, no, do you understand what's happening in our bodies at all times? Like, do you understand we bleed every month and don't die? Yeah. Like literally there's magic happening inside of a woman's body at all times. So like, yeah, I'm going to be a little crazy sometimes. Yeah. We'll preach, preach. Cause yeah. I'm a lot <laughs> crazy sometimes. No, it's so true. I think the other thing is, is it's like, you have to work that much harder to keep it together and just be normal because there's so many days where you want to just like check out, right? Like if you're feeling yeah. that way, it's kind of like, I don't want to have to do all my normal responsibilities because you're feeling some kind of way, which is like that you need to get into bed and you need to watch Bridget Jones diary. And that's yeah. the only thing that's <laughs> going to help. You know what I mean? Like, otherwise leave me alone. Yeah. When I was younger, I felt like I never needed alone time. Like I'm such a social person. I like feed off others' energies. I get full from being around people. Like I'm very extroverted. And so I remember like in my twenties, when people be like, I need alone time. I'd be like, why, why are you so boring? I need to be around people 24 seven. And the older I get, the more I'm like, no, I must refuel. I have to be in silence for at least one day. Like there'll be days, especially this past year during the fucking panoramic Ponderosa where I like didn't even hear my own voice out loud till like three in the afternoon one day. Did you cry? <laughs> no, it was like, I laughed because I was like, I answered the phone. And I was like, oh, like my voice was all like dusty and cracked because it hadn't been used for like almost 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. I remember reading an article. The reason I asked if you cried was I remember reading this article about, it was like probably YM or something like this. And this girl, she went to an island or she went someplace by herself for three days. By the time she finally heard her voice, she was like, I cried because I hadn't heard anything or had any interaction. Okay. So let's talk about how the pandemic has been for you. If you're someone who's normally around a lot of people, was the adjustment really hard? Did you welcome that time? Is there anything you discovered about yourself during that time that surprised you? Yeah, absolutely. I will say I, throughout this pandemic, have been in a very luxurious privilege place. I'm not a frontline worker. I'm not a healthcare worker. Like I had the privilege of being okay, not working and not having to risk, you know, my health and my life. So like, I'm very grateful for that, which I think made it a little bit easier because I could always have perspective and be like, okay, yeah, you're alone and you're sad and you're bored, but at least you're not having to be out there and like take care of a family of seven, you know? But I think at the beginning, because we were all like, ah, this will just be like a couple weeks or whatever. That was was cute of us. It was was so cute. Yeah. Like our show, we were filming special season two and we shut down and they're like, we're just going to shut down for two weeks. I was like, oh, great. We'll take a little two week break. Yeah, Yeah. So I think it felt okay. And like, I was spending a lot of time on my little like porch. I was like doing different workouts every day at home. I was cooking. I was like getting into a little like home routine. And I was like, this actually isn't so bad. I was like reading a lot, 
And then I would say by summer and also with everything that happened this past summer too, it was like overwhelming, obviously even more so for some than others that I think that was when it first was like, oh, I just wish I had someone here to process this all with. I think that's when it really hit me because it was so powerful to go to marches and to educate myself in so many ways that I hadn't before. And it was a really powerful summer. And hopefully it's not over. It wasn't just the summer. It's hopefully there's a shift happening in all of us. But I think it's like sometimes we do this thing to ourselves where because we do have it quote unquote good, we don't allow ourselves to actually like feel what we feel. And I think when we're like witness to so many like atrocities and so many like displays of like lack of humanity, we almost feel guilty feeling bad or sad because it's like, well, look at what's happening. People in this country are being gunned down in the street. Like, why should I ever feel bad? And I really had to work through that and be like, well, that also doesn't serve anyone. You can't serve or help or contribute to humanity if you're not like taking care of yourself first. And I think I really had to shift and be like, and it's okay to be like, and this is very overwhelming and this is very hard and this is devastating and it makes me feel sad. And it makes me feel lonely because I wish there was someone else here to just sit next to and talk about this with. And it's all relative. And I think to your point, all of those experiences are still valid, even if they're not as egregious as other people's experiences. It's like the sort of like comparative thing that we do on every level for good and for bad. To your point, I don't really think serves anybody because you still need to allow for your own feelings and emotions and experiences, which are what they are without having to compare them to others. Yeah, absolutely. You like literally can't be there for anyone if you're not there for yourself, you know? So do you live alone? I do. And I love it. But there was definitely moments where I was like, oh, I guess it would be kind of nice. But for the most part, I've been really happy I live alone during this past year because I think there, if there was someone here all the time, I'd probably go crazy. <laughs> like right. it might be a lot. Right. Well, okay. So, you know, we all know what we feel like we have lost during this time, but what do you think that you've gained? Like, what are some silver linings? How have you adjusted during this time that you would like to take with you? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we talked about stuff with the world. I feel like it made a lot of us really be like, oh, we have to educate ourselves on things. Even if we think we're so woke and on the right side of humanity, there's still so much that even the best of us have to educate ourselves on that is ingrained in us. And I feel like having this time, like you really just couldn't escape it. And I think that was a really powerful thing. And I think personally, I was already kind of on this journey of really appreciating my own company. I had like just traveled by myself for the first time that December before the pandemic started. I went to Columbia. Ooh, it was amazing. I spent like a little over a week by myself in Medellin. And then I met up with a friend after that. I had done like another little solo trip. Um, Last time I was in Europe, I like tacked on like Stockholm and spent like a week there by myself. But this was like, felt like my first real solo adventure. And it just like made me feel so confident because again, like I never was the type of person that was like, go to the movies by yourself. What are you sad and crazy? Like, I was just very judgmental of that. And now I am that person. And I'm like, oh no, I get it. It's so empowering. And I feel like then having the option of being social just taken away 
made me even more self-reliant, made me enjoy my own company even more. And now as you know, more and more people are getting vaccinated and all this thing, these things are happening. I think it's made me appreciate the life that I have more than ever. Like even the little things like getting coffee with a friend, like we really take these things for granted a lot. And then it's like, sometimes they have to be taken away for us to be like, oh, we are so extremely lucky to even live here. I've never traveled by myself in that capacity. And I'm sure also you don't have to deal with the logistics of traveling with somebody whose like style is not yours. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Cause I feel like I kind of like go rogue a little bit when I travel. Mm -hmm. And so it would kind of be my nightmare to have to travel with someone that's like, okay, 8am meet in the lobby. And I'd be like, uh, yeah, you got to be on the same pace. Yeah. And that's not to say it was just like 1000% great all the time. Cause like, that's just not how life and humans work. There was definitely moments when I was in Stockholm and when I was in Medellin slash Jean, um, in, in Colombia, in Colombia that I was kind of like eating an amazing meal. Cause I like, obviously like I love food and I'm just like sitting in the corner of a restaurant, like moaning by myself. And I'm like, damn, I do actually wish there was someone here or like I'm getting drunk by myself with like a wine pairing and like a 12 course meal. And I'm like, this will be kind of fun with someone else. (laughs) But, but it sounds pretty decadent on your own too. It was, I was like the weirdo woman in the corner of restaurants, like moaning and moaning, (laughs) moaning, getting drunk. And then like taking each plate. And I was like, really trying to just like smell it and just like enjoy it and look at it and like heighten all my senses and like consume this food. I really was, I did this food meditation once where it was like, whatever you're eating, like it was like, take a bite, put the bowl down, keep it in your mouth, feel the texture in your mouth, feel the flavor in your mouth. Like don't even chew or swallow for like a good 20 seconds. It was interesting. We don't really think about our other senses when we're eating. (laughs) Okay. Let's talk about the idea of having it all. Is that something that you subscribe to? And if so, what does it look like to you? I feel like... If you do, it couldn't be consistent. Like it's kind of like emotions or feelings. Like even if you like checked, because it's also like relative, like having it all for some person could mean scarcity for another, you know? So there's that. But then also it's like, even if you made a list of everything you thought you wanted and you checked everything off of that list, one, as humans, I feel like we're always going to want more because that's just how shitty we are. And two, (laughs) you just can't be consistently anything that would be insane. If we didn't feel everything in turns, like we wouldn't be human. Mm -hmm. So I think it's like, even if I got everything I could ever imagine, I'm still a human being. There's still going to be days where I'm like, I don't feel good or I feel sad or I miss this person or I miss my mom or anything. So I think the idea of like having it all is just not realistic and almost could just like, set you up for a life where you're constantly striving for something and kind of ignore all the things you currently have and enjoy, like you'll miss out on so much. Right. All the blessings that you do have. What about the idea of designing a life that works for you instead of fitting into something that doesn't? Tell me a little bit about where did you grow up? What kind of life did you envision for yourself? Did you always want to go into acting and comedy or tell us a little bit about your history? 
Yeah. So I was born and raised in Florida. So that's why I'm like kind of a little trashy. And <laughs> now it adds up. Yeah, it adds up. I it couldn't up. put my finger on it. I'm a Florida girl. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now I get it. Florida, which actually has like a lot of beauty in it, but the people just suck. So sorry, Florida. I had to say it. What part of Florida? Vero Beach. It's like a tiny little beach town on the East Coast. Really pretty. Very beautiful beach. Um, but you know, it's Florida. So. It's, it's still that. <laughs> yeah. I, I grew up in, in a really white town as well. Like super white. The school I went to from pre-K through 12th grade was an Episcopalian private school that my parents like worked really hard to send me to lots of like really rich, really white people. I think I was one of maybe four Brown people in my grade. So I think for a long time in my youth, which I think a lot of immigrants and children of immigrants in particular do is kind of aligning yourself with whiteness for safety. So I don't really beat myself up about it because I was so young, but I think in high school, I just like wanted to be like, like everyone else. You just want to, that's like so universal, right? Everyone else in my case just happened to be rich and white and thin. And those are just two of those things are just things that this was never going to be, but you know, I was like, I want to shop at Abercrombie. I want to look like the girls in the Abercrombie ads. I want a long torso like Tara Reid. You know, it's just, you know what? I don't even think Tara Reid wanted that torso. That was a crazy torso. But that was the torso that was in at the time. Her, Misha Barton, Britney Spears. Like you just want that long, no curve. No hip, no hip. No hip, flat, toast torso. Yeah. And I'm extremely curvy. And like, I love that about myself now, but that just was not going to happen. So I think I spent a good portion of my youth kind of striving for things I was never going to be just to fit in because that's what was accepted. And then I think probably even maybe throughout college, I was still a little bit in that space, but at least in college, I was introduced to other Indian people, other friends from different places. And my friend group definitely expanded more after that. And growing up, my parents were like very good about always teaching me about Indian culture. We were always going to like the Vali events and doing dances and, you know, going to temples and things like that and hanging out with family and family friends that were Indian a lot. So, but it definitely felt like I had like my Indian life and then my white American life. And I would say after college, when I moved to Atlanta is probably the first place I lived where I saw people of color in positions of power and where I just saw people of color more normalized. And that's probably where I began to embrace my identity, explore it more. But I think the thing with identity is it's like a constant exploration and journey. There's constantly things we're learning about ourselves, our past, our parents, our family. But I think I definitely am at a place now where I fully embrace and love being Indian. And it's kind of funny because like when people, even if I travel, people ask me what I am. Like my answer is never American. It's always Indian, Mm -hmm. even though it's like, yeah, technically I'm American. I always still first and foremost identify as Indian. I know there's pride associated with that, but I think it's also because every other person in this country that's not white always has a hyphen with American, African-American, Asian-American, Indian-American. And so it's kind of part of that embedded into me as well, that it's like, oh, but you're not fully American. 
which is a very weird thing to think about. Right. Do you think that that experience growing up and feeling somehow outside of who you wanted to be, do you think that that helped you to develop your sense of humor as like a defense mechanism or as some sort of like self-protection so that you could be ahead of things and have that filter through which to armor yourself in social situations? Oh, absolutely. I think naturally I'm a like positive and funny person, like, and I like to entertain because like, I know my dad is definitely like that. He's always like the big storyteller at parties, but I think it definitely also developed as a survival mechanism. I used to joke around. So I was like super, super chubby growing up too, but I was like extremely confident. Like I didn't, I had not been exposed to like societal standards at that point when I was in like, you know, sixth grade. Right. And I don't know if this is true, but maybe for me, when you can't rely on fitting into societal standards of beauty, you do find other ways to be palatable to people and to be attractive to people. And I think making people laugh was like, oh, they like me. I'm making them laugh. I'm making them happy. And that's something I inherently enjoy doing, but I'm sure subconsciously it was also developed as a way to avoid conflict and as a way to kind of be like, and look, you can like me too. Like I can be part of this as well because I'm here to entertain you. (laughs) Even the narrative of what you just said though, it's like palatable is so much different than attractive, right? Like being attractive to someone versus being tolerable. It's just like, just even in the choice of words, it's just such a crazy thing. And I do think that like people with a highly developed sense of humor, it is because it's like that I've always relied too heavily on my personality. You know what I mean? And like, I think (laughs) through that, like you do have a sense of confidence though, because there's those other external elements where it's like, is sort of a non-issue to you because you're not falling back on that in such a way where you feel like you don't have anything else to offer. Absolutely. Because if all the messaging you get is that you don't belong, you're not going to feel like you belong and you're going to find ways to get in. Because that's literally inherently like as humans, what we want is like, we just want to belong somewhere and feel a part of something. And so if growing up, I never saw anyone that looked like me on TV I couldn't have even imagined that I'd be on a TV show right now. Like I didn't move to LA and like start working in TV until I was 30, which I guess some would consider later in life. I'm happy I did that because I had a good sense of self coming into this. And I think it's helped me um, in my career and my personal life living in a place like LA. But I never in my wildest dreams would have ever imagined that I would be an actor because there was no examples of that shown to me. So it didn't seem like it'd be possible. What did you imagine for your life? Were you pursuing something else with your studies? Yeah, I was a journalism major. Originally, I wanted to like work for Vice or be like a foreign correspondent, like Christian Amanpour or something. I was really passionate about it. I studied journalism. I was like so into it. And then I think the more I thought about the type of person I am and how I really like absorb people's energies and feelings and states of being. And I'm like, you ain't going to be able to handle that. Mm-hmm. You're going to fly your ass to like, you know, some A country where people are being <laughs> fucking slaughtered. And then you think you're going to be like able to go to dinner with your friends the next week. Like I will carry that with me, even just consuming the news. I carry it with me some days, you know, yeah. like how can you not? And so I was like, if you want to dedicate your entire life and this be your entire life, 
then yeah, go for it. And I think I would have been really good at it. I think mentally it would have been too hard for someone like me. And so I transitioned to doing more like magazine editing. So I worked in that for a long time, probably up until, let's see, maybe nine years ago, I was still working um, as an editor for a different magazine. And then I was living in Chicago at the time and Second City offered me a stage because I'd been doing improv in college. And then I started taking classes when I moved to Chicago. And then even then I was like, I say this all the time on podcasts. I was like, I was set. I was like, I'll just do this till they kick me off the stage. And then I'll teach or something like, this is great. I still hadn't processed that. Like, no, from here I can transition to TV and film. Cause I was like that. What? I didn't study acting. I can't do that. People like me aren't on TV. So I think that's still, I still, even after everything am grateful for that experience, because in a way it keeps me really grounded because every single day I get to do this, I'm still like, oh my God, I can't believe I get to do this. Cause it was just nothing I could have even imagined for myself. Right. I, I just read something about embracing your slash and how like we are living in a time now where it's no longer frowned upon to be like, I do this and I do this and I do this because you're really trying to seek out things that really personify all of your passions and you yeah. want an outlet for those things. So when you were doing Second City and when you were doing improv, it sounds like you were sort of okay to have your job and then yeah. pursue your passion on the side. Was that kind of what you were doing? Oh, absolutely. But I think it's like with everything, you're content until like a possibility is presented to you. And then you're like, oh, wait, I could do that. Yeah. But if you didn't know you could do that, then you'd be fine doing whatever. It's only when the opportunities come that the more desire comes with it. Right. When you see what's possible. So it's like, so yeah. you're, you're doing Second City and then it's like you get a job. And then it's like, all of a sudden you're aware yes. of what's possible. And so then you want to push for more and more and more, which then brings us to now yeah. I've been binging special. And so for anyone who hasn't watched it, I hope you can tell them a little bit about it. Yeah. It's based on him and his life and where he used to be in his life. And I just think he's so brilliant because that first season was a quarter hour series. And in my mind, cause I also write, I'm like, how in 15 minutes, can anyone sink their teeth into anything? How can you tell a story? How can you give anyone enough time? And somehow he's done it. You watch those episodes. It doesn't no. feel like it's just 15 minutes. It's such a full, complete story. He's so brilliant. He did such a good job of also breaking ground in so many ways for representation when it comes to queer people, disabled people, brown women, curvy women, but it's all normalized. It's never in your face and here comes the fat brown girl. Like it's always so human. It's always so based in humanity and something that's actually universal, even when it's the most specific form of representation. And I think that's what's so magical about his writing and him as a creator is that he's able to take things that if you just read it on paper, you might be like, whoa, that's a lot but then you watch it and you're like, this person is just like me. Yeah. I, I like what you say about representation. And I think one of the things in the beginning of the show, he lives with his mother and they have this like incredibly sweet relationship where she's probably a lot more dependent on him than he is on her, but him having cerebral palsy, he does not want to define him. And so when he gets a job at the 
kind of the website where you work, your character works. Yeah. He actually prefers to have told or to have everyone think that his walk and any of his physical limitations are from having been hit by a car. And you say something yeah. that really resonates, Kim does, which is once you just own everything, no one can take anything away from you. And I think that's such a poignant statement about all of it. Right. And I was going to ask yeah. you how much of yourself you see in Kim, but then you told me, you know, you grew up as a really confident kid. And I wonder, do you still feel like you have that much confidence now? Yeah, I think I went through a cycle. I think when I was young, before I hit puberty, before I knew about gender norms and societal standards of beauty and all that fun stuff that gets dumped on you as a young preteen, I really was confident and happy and positive. And then when I entered middle school, I remember I started playing sports. I started playing lacrosse. I started to lose weight. And that's when like, I got deeply insecure. I spent probably the next maybe decade and a half of my life on different diets and eating plans and this and that, trying to lose weight throughout college, probably throughout Atlanta, probably even parts of when I lived in Chicago. And I think it's when I entered my thirties, I was finally like, hold on a goddamn second. I love food. It's a passion for me. It brings me joy. Why am I like associating it with shame and something that needs to be withheld instead of thinking about it in a way of it's something that nourishes me? Why am I withholding so much? And what, when I feel inferior and I feel a lack of worth, I wasn't even questioning compared to what? Like, I think sometimes we get insecure, but we don't stop to be like, okay, but what am I even measuring this up against? And do I even believe in that? And when I really stop to think about it, it's like, oh, I was feeling insecure because I'm measuring myself up against a societal standard of beauty that deep down, I actually don't even believe in. So I can stop measuring myself up to it. And it was just very freeing to come full circle to kind of like, channel that young chubby punam again and be like, no, before I knew about all these things, before I was exposed to these things, inherently during that special time of my life, I did like myself. I did think I look, I remember like putting on blue eyeshadow and being like, damn, was I look good. You can see it in pictures. I'm so chubby. And you can see it in my diaries. I'm like, I wore my black silk dress. Everyone was looking at me probably because they were jealous, like right. literally so confident. So I'm like, it was there, but we're just human. And especially as young women in this world, we, we all get affected by it. It's just about not letting it overwhelm us and not letting it define us. Cause there's never going to be a day in our life where we don't have some sort of insecurity or something like that. We're not perfect, but if we can just stop and be like, what is actually at the root of this? Is it because I truly believe that I'm not good enough? Or is it because of like messaging that's been taught to me? And I say this all the time, but like anytime I feel insecure, I stop and I'm like, who's profiting off of this? Because there's entire industries made to profit off of our insecurities and they make money the more we feel this way. So I'm like, you are not making money. Off not of today, Tara Reed. Not today. Terribly. You know, not today. Well, so, okay. So now this has to be a dream come true. You're starring on a show. This is something that you never thought was going to happen. And I wonder, like everybody thinks obviously that acting is so glamorous and, and I'm sure there's a lot of those components to it, but what are the things that you think would surprise people? 
how much uh, it's just sitting around. Like hurry up and wait. <laughs> yeah, there's like a lot of sitting around. There's a lot of just like eating crap at Crafty. Well, not anymore because now at Crafty's, you actually like, you can't just grab what you want, Ooh. you know, because of the pandemic, which has mm-hmm. actually been good because before when I could, I would just like tear through it. But now I'm like, I'm not actually going to be like, can I get M&Ms and peanut butter pretzels and some Twizzlers and a donut? And like, I'm just not going to ask for all those things. So I'll go there. And I'll be like, can I right. have a bottle of water? Right. <laughs> like I'll actually Times have stop. Change. It's not anonymous anymore. Yeah, just like you're like ch- grabbing in the bowl. It's like not. now you have to like speak your truth out loud. Yeah. And actually think about like, what do I actually want and need right now? And what's going to actually make me feel like crap. But yeah, I would say that. And the other thing, which I am very open about is I wear a wig. You do? On the show. I have very, okay. thin, I do. I have pretty thin hair and I try and protect it as much as I can. And I like want to normalize like everyone saying that they wear wigs or clip-ins. No one on TV is wearing their real hair. No one looks like this in real life. I sit in a chair for like two hours and they slap a wig on my head and then like beat my face to the gods. And I think like that's part of what should be normalized so that when, you know, especially young women watch TV or even young men probably, you know, feel insecure as well. They don't think that people just look like that all the time. Yeah. And it's not just young women too. It's like, you know, yeah. Listen, I certainly like see things and I'm like, Hmm, wish this was a little bit more like this. or that was a little bit. Yes. But it's so true. It's all smoke and mirrors. Oh yeah. And I'm like, so open about having thin hair. I like tell everyone I use Rogaine. I love it. Here's another product placement. Rogaine, get at me. What about Uh, pills? I used to take biotin. Mm-hmm. It's like a vitamin, but I haven't tried any other pills or anything like that. But the Rogaine, like all my baby hairs, it's all new growth from the Rogaine, which is great. But I'm like not embarrassed by any of that because it's just hair. And like, there's so many people that have thin hair or that are losing hair. And it can be like, we attach a lot of beauty to hair. And I feel like, just normalizing that not everyone's going to have thick, luscious, also a certain texture, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I feel like we really only associate pretty hair with certain like types of textures and colors too. Right. There's not a lot of like hair care ads that are like, you've never seen thinner, more brittle hair than when you, yeah. <laughs> than yeah. when you use our products. Like, if you're, if you're looking for that wispy look, we got you, girl. Yeah, like, want more frizz? Come at me. We, like, we maybe need to do that. We're not celebrating. Totally. Well, what yeah. about now? Because now it's like you're at a place in your life where you have been open to possibilities. So how do you stay motivated now and really, like, look towards the future while also taking stock in how much you've accomplished and not getting too far ahead of yourself that you, like you said, you don't enjoy the blessings that you have? but also be direct about it and intentional. Absolutely. And like, I'll preface this by saying, I absolutely always recognize that I have the luxury of being able to think the way I do because I have been very fortunate in being able to work and have consistent work and work on things I enjoy. And that is a luxury and a privilege. And so when I'm in that position, it is easier for me to stay positive and feel good about it because things have worked out. A lot of people I think could get frustrated when it's like someone 
that's like, well, just stay positive. It's like, well, yeah, it's easy for you to say that because you're not struggling, but there's a lot of people that are really struggling right now. And it's not fair to tell them to just be positive all the time. It's like a little toxic. But this year in particular, I just actively remember like saying, I'm consciously going to work from a place of abundance across the board. Cause I think, especially in this industry and in life, you can work from a place of scarcity. You can always focus on like, well, I didn't get this or I didn't get that, or I want this body and I don't have that hair or this or whatever, but working from a place of abundance in the sense of just trusting that I will always be enough and it will always be a knife enough. The life it may I be have a knife will be as well. Enough. <laughs> the knife I have will be enough to cut through this sandwich I'm about it, to eat. No, but. but abundance. And that is, it's a total mindset. Yeah. It's like our friend Oprah says, it's like when you focus on what you have, you end up having more. I truly believe it because also I think if I look at it realistically and I don't internalize it as much or take it so personally, I'm going to say as an actor, maybe just for me, I'm going to say 90 something percent of things I auditioned for, I'm not going to get, but it's not because, oh my God, I think I did a bad job. That's just the way it is. It's like one of the most competitive industries. And so, you know, it's like dating. It's like, yeah, most things aren't going to work out until the person that does. And so I really treat career like that. And it's like, whether I get the job or not, I'm still here and I still have to live with me. And I've, really found power in being able to say no, which again, I'm working from a place of privilege that I'm in a position where I can start to say no to things that don't sit right with me. But I think for a long time, I was too scared to say anything or even ask for anything. Cause I was like, it's crazy that they even let me in. It's crazy that I even get to work in this industry as an actor. Like I was just so, so like, let me not say anything because what if they find out I'm not actually supposed to be here and they kick me out. And now the more I work and the more confident I am and the more affirmation I get, the more I'm like, no, there's so much power in being like, no, I'm really grateful. And also I can ask for what I'm worth. And also I can not do things just for the sake of having a job if it doesn't sit right with me. And I deserve to be here. Yes, absolutely. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. Well, so Looking at it today, what would your having it all look like to you? I feel really content. I feel right now, like I feel happy with the work that I've done. I feel happy with the people in my life. I feel happy with my family. I feel happy with my body, my home, like the life I've built for myself. I think when I look at it is still beyond what a younger version of me could have even imagined. So like, Right now, I do feel like, yeah, I, I have a good life. There's always things that you can improve on. I think the things that not me that I yearn for are more things outside of myself, are more things like with the world and things like that and with like the industry. But for me in particular, I feel really content with where I am. And I think if I had to say like the number one thing is like, I just can't wait till we start to see more shifts in humanity that then translate into our industry as well. And it is happening little by little, but there's still such a long way to go, but I can't wait till I'm on a show with another Indian woman and we're allowed to have more than one, which a little tiny spoiler about special. There are more than one Indian 
there's more than one Indian, which is like insane to me. Cause I was like, I was on set and I was surrounded by <laughs> Indians and I was like, I don't know what this feels like. I'm always the only one. Like, so I can't wait till there's more of that. Right. What's next for Kim? So tell us when is the next season premiere? It's in May, right? May 20th on mm-hmm. Netflix, um, season two premieres, all eight episodes, and there'll be half hour episodes, which is great. And I really, really value and appreciate Ryan because he really fought for 30 minute episodes in particular, because he really wanted to expand my character's story. And he really did the second season. Like they wrote so much for me. You really get to see more of her cracks and more of her flaws. She's just so much more human than you could have imagined. And so much more like of a mess. Right. Cause she does not give that off. She seems like she's got her shit. No. Together. Yeah. Which I really appreciate. Cause I think it goes back to what we were talking about. Like you can't just be one yeah. thing all the time. Like you can be really confident and still have things you're insecure about. You can be really proud of yourself and like your body and still be a mess in another way. Like we're, we're, we're made of so many parts. And I think you really get to see that with her. You see her kind of get in her own way, kind of sabotage herself a little bit. But then I think you see her like really grow up and make some huge sacrifices for the sake of becoming like a better person and becoming an adult. Like, I think a lot of this show is about becoming like an independent adult, which I think is really relatable to a lot of people because it can be scary. It's so scary. And we're all doing our best. I love talking to you. For anyone who doesn't follow you, where can they find you? What's up next? I knew you had some other really exciting announcements if you want to share. Yeah. Um, I'm on Instagram at Big Punam. So I B-I-G-P-U-N. <laughs> I know I get tagged as Big Pun, the rapper all the time. And I'm like, you guys, he's passed away. Do you think he's still like active on Instagram? You know what? Like, I don't think Instagram was even a thing when he passed away. I don't, I, but I, don't I get tagged so all the time. It's amazing. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's a very exciting time. And it's been so lovely talking you to you. too. Um, stay in touch and we will definitely be watching special out May 20th. Yes. Thank you so much, Phnom. Having It All in Other Lies is a production of Embassy Row. Our executive producer is Sarni Rogers. This episode was produced by Alexa Machia and Anna Marie Johnson. You can follow me on Instagram at Sarah underscore Riff and the show at Having It All podcast. See you next week.